Empty nesters that follow Empty Nest Guests, thank you so much for joining me for this very special video episode of Empty Nest Guests. I feel so honored to have Mr. Clifton Talbert with us today, with all of us. We're going to have a video portion of the show, and hopefully you can also tune in um, audio. So this will be on Spotify and Apple, and then if you're listening to the podcast on Apple and Spotify, you'll be able to find it on YouTube. But without further ado, thank you, Clifton, for joining me today. No, thank you for the invitation. I was delighted to say yes. Yes. Uh, listeners, such a treat. Um, Clifton and I are both on the Boys and Girls Club committee for the Salvation Army. And when I walked in, it was new for me this year to be on this committee, and I walked in and I almost was speechless. I was like, oh my gosh, there's Clifton Talbert. And so I tried to play it really cool, and, and I knew who he was, such an accomplished author and, and an incredible, um, I'll read a little bit on the bio here, just so I introduce you, and then I want you to chime in and, and tell listeners about you. But it was really neat for me to just be like, this is going to be a blessing this year to get to be with you. So listeners who aren't familiar, I'm going to read a little bit just because I have this and there's so much to share, and you feel free to jump in. So anytime you want to jump in, but I, I want to introduce you a little bit um, based off of a bio that I found. So born in the Mississippi Delta, uh, Clifton has reaped rewards for his observances of strong family bonds, which I so appreciate, that came from the rich soil of the region. And I love this sentence. It says, he has shared these rewards with his adopted Tulsa in the form of service to community organizations, and a consistent positive message of educational and economic opportunities available to all. So you were raised in Glen Allen, Mississippi. That's correct. Okay, tell a little bit about that. Glen Allen, it's the place that once you go there, the history comes alive, even though the history is what it is, it's history. But it still is representative of the Old South in some regards. And in part of that representation, the sense of family and connectivity is there. When my older relatives were still alive, I would go home every year. It's almost like it's an energy boost uh, to get a sense of who you are. You're reminded of the debt you owe to so many others. Yes. And, and I think that journey kind of helps me to clearly understand the necessity for people to be intentional about unselfishness. Because if we are intentional about becoming that person, it really impacts all we say and all we do, and certainly has a positive impact on others. Yes, and I so appreciate that. And, and it was not a traditional upbringing. So you were no, raised not really. by some oh. very special people, but it and, wasn't and, a and traditional And I call home. them very special. Uh, I didn't grow up in one house. Uh, I, I don't know how that would be. I didn't have that experience. But every house that I lived in, every place with my mom or not with my mom, uh, it was a place of love. Uh, and that is what I remember. I, I, rem I, I think I would have wanted to be in one place and have a, the typical television family. Sure. But I didn't have that. But what I did have were people who took advantage of the opportunity to show their love towards me. And that gave me a sense of, a better sense of understanding that community is really a two-way street. It's not one avenue going somewhere else. It's a two-way street that allows us to bump into each other, to bump into the life of each other, 
to bump into the challenges of each other, to bump into the joy of each other. This is what community does. And I guess my life, now that I look back, if I change anything about yesterday, I wouldn't have today. That's so true. That's true for all of us. And and I, what I loved that you talked about, I'm looking here, is that um, you you grew up on those front porches. And you all talked a lot about life on the front porch, sitting and just spending time with those who were much older than you and listening. And you're, it was very important for you to be in community and all that community did and all the hardship and everything that people were going through back then. You handled a lot of it on the front porch, didn't you? Yeah, it is, it's interesting because early on when I was a child, they did not call it building community. For them, it was just who they were. Their pastime consisted of unselfishness toward others. I often tell people that in my small community as a kid, you weren't allowed to be born alone and you weren't allowed to die alone. I always remember those those two events seem as if the whole community convalesced around them, death, and certainly around life. And uh, you saw that, and you would leave that sight with a sense of, ah, yeah. You, you, you're not talking to anybody, but your internal self is beginning to gravitate toward unselfishness slowly and slowly. And all of a sudden, you become that guy that's willing to share your cards, your baseball cards that you collected. You're willing to share a piece of your donut or whatever you yeah. may have. And it just happened so nonchalantly, but yet it happened so positively and steadfastly that it becomes part of who you are. I love that. My mom and dad, very similar to what you talked about. We, we were taught, my sister and I, to show up big for people. When a baby's born, you show up. When somebody has a celebration of life, passes away, we go. We go to that service. And when things are hard, you show up. And there's important things that... We need community, and I love that, and that's what led to this book. But I want to get from how did you get from the Mississippi Delta to Tulsa, Oklahoma? Oh, Charlotte, that's a long journey. (laughs) Maybe the short version. That's a long conversation. Okay. uh, But I would say the military was part of it. Okay. And the military became very instrumental in my literary world because I had no idea that a writer lived inside of me. But uh, I was in the military during the ending days of the Vietnam War, but it was still going on, and troops on both sides of the war were being mass uh, killed. Uh, so death was evident all around them. I never was sent to Vietnam, but my orders, I think, were always waiting to be given to me. Wow. So I lived with that fear. And the only way I could get rid of that fear was to lock up in my room when my roommate was gone sit on the floor, take a yellow pad, no laptop, no phone to write with, just a yellow pad, legal pad. And I began writing short stories about the people that I knew and loved back in Glen Allen, Mississippi, with no thought that those yellow pads would become four books. It's amazing, isn't it? But it yeah. is. It's and were you at ORU then? No. no. I was, this no. was happening in the barracks. Oh, okay. For four years, oh, wow. I wrote. Okay. And when I came to Tulsa to gra- to finish my education, undergraduate, I brought my pasteboard box with me with all of my yellow pads, mm-hmm. and uh, they found a place under the bed at Oral Roberts University, 
And even then I began to write uh, quietly, uh, not absolutely sure of what I had written or would it be of value. But uh, I, I was led to believe that someone bigger than myself was in that writing. And, and I would see that as time unfolded. I would see that. Yes, my hands were used. My memory was brought to task. But the context of the stories, they had to be someone bigger than me invited. Well, obviously so. And listeners, just so you know, I might jump a little bit. So, so oh, you joined the Air Force. I see. Mm-hmm. Okay, joined the Air Force, then came to Tulsa. But um, listeners, so Clifton's books, the one we're going to get to today is called Eight Habits of the Heart. But before that, tell us about the book that was the predecessor. Yeah, it's the book that changed my life and gave me a new life. I I was in banking school, and that was my desire to be a banker. And that was to, at SMU, SMU's right? SMU's banking, okay. uh, graduate school of banking. And, uh, but Once Upon a Time in We Were Colored had been written, printed. I carried it around for 24 years. No one wanted to publish it. For 24 years? 24 years, I carried that book around, the manuscript. Wow. And, uh, and we were at a reading where I was one of the readers for another book, and the publishers were there here in Tulsa. And uh, they heard me, and they said, will you send us a part of that manuscript? And I said, no, I have sent it all over New York. I, I've got nothing but rejection letters. I don't want another rejection letter. They said, well, read a section to us. I said, I'll come to your place and read a section, but I will not send it to you. They said, well, we don't do it that way, but we'll do it this one time. And so they allowed me to come to their office and read the chapter called The End of a Season, The Death of My Great Grandmother. Mm-hmm. And they said, if all of your writing is like this, you have a publisher. That and is so awesome. And listeners, I, I cannot stress to you enough if you haven't seen the movie, read the book first, Once Upon a Time yeah. When We Were Colored. But the movie, I was telling Clifton before we started recording, that movie made such an impact because that was it was released the year that our son was born. And we had our daughter, so she was almost two, and then he was born. And I remember seeing that movie thinking, Gordy and I, my husband and I, have so much to teach our kids about this time in history and this movie. And I love Felicia Rashad, too, the <laughs> actress. So it was so impactful. And then, you know, to, to become acquainted with your work through that and then subsequent books. So tell listeners what other books are out there, too, before we dive in. To- Last Train North, yes. nominated for the Pulitzer. It won the Doubleday Book of the Year. It became, I became the first African-American to win the Mississippi Institute of Arts and Letters Award for nonfiction based upon The Last Train North. Uh, it just, it, it overwhelmed me with the acceptance that it found in the marketplace. But uh, one of the other books that I've read is called The Invitation. And it came out in 1964. No, no. It was 2014. 2014. Celebrating the 50 year of the civil rights legislation being signed. Okay. So it came out in 2014. But I, it took me seven years to write it. Wow. I rewrote it in by hand almost three times. And I feel that I was used by something bigger than myself yes. to write that book. 
And listeners who are listening, you know, my uh, my audience is, is empty nesters, lots of empty nesters who kids have grown and flown, a lot of people figuring out what do I do next and what do I do about my marriage, what do I do about this relationship. I know there's some writers out there, and, and you all know I'm, I'm working on that as well, but for anybody who carries anything around, this just shows you something can lie dormant for 24, 24 years. And it's timing, you know. Yes. I, 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 I would have to say that had it come out in the 20th, in the first year, it probably would have been a big thud in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the year it came out in 1989, it was absolutely incredible. Uh, my publisher said we have 3,000 copies printed, not because they thought the book was that good, that was the break-even point for the publisher to have 3,000 copies. Wow. And they said, this will last you five years. It lasted probably three months. Isn't that exciting? And that's when you know the affirmation of your writing, and people needed that. And, and it was the right time. It was the right time. And I, you know, again, listeners, I was so excited when I went went to that meeting, and I was like, oh, my gosh, there's Clifton Talbert. I'm going to bring my books and have him sign the books. And then, you know, I tell you, listeners, all the time, I pray about these podcasts. I pray about who's supposed to be on, who needs to be helping our empty nest life out there. And I was like, wow, what an honor it would be to have him on. And to, to even get to sit and talk to somebody whose work's been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Thank you for coming on the show. I really no, appreciate your pleasure. time. And the last book I'll reference is Who Owns the Ice House? Okay. It's about entrepreneurship. It's about my great uncle who hired me to work for him when I was 13. That literally changed the trajectory of my expectations. Wow. Is that what kind of pointed you to business school? Pointed me to business school. It gave me a whole different sense of what I could do. Because prior to that, I did what everyone else had done. I worked in the fields. We were domestic migrant field workers. And I thought that would be the only world I would ever know. But when my uncle hired me at the Ice House, not only did he hire me, but he also instilled in me life lessons that he had learned that allowed him to have the only business in that community that served the entire community. That was only one ice house. If you were white, you bought his ice. If you were Chinese, you bought his ice. If you were Italian, you bought his ice. If you were black, you bought his ice. And I had to serve all of these people in this one place. And I I would never forget- At age 13, when you started, yeah. It it was a probably breaking every child labor law. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Times were a lot different, though. But but I learned my my, my great uncle, he, I had to balance the books at the end end of the day. And if a penny was missing, we stayed there till we found the penny. Uh, You could only have two moon pies, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And you could only have two pops. That's all. And if you got more than that, you didn't have a job. Yeah. I mean, his rules were very strict. You had to be there at 8 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. not 8.01, not 8.02. So I learned early on that time was not to play with, yes. but it was to be used wisely. That's, and that served you so well. I'm it sure has. All, just all through everything you have done. It's interesting all the stepping stones of your life have led you to to where you are today, all those those things that you thought, I'm just here at a job with yeah, my uncle, you know? Yeah, I, you know. Who would have thought, coming up in the cotton fields of the Mississippi Delta, that I would be the guest at the Library of Congress introduced by Sandra Day O'Connor? Yes. I mean, those things never crossed my mind. I couldn't even go to the library when I was a kid. So I didn't have that history of being surrounded by afternoon reading chap- reading 
ex-episodes. When you addressed the Supreme Court, is that right? Yes. Yes, what was that address about? It was about community. Community. Yeah, Justice O'Connor had heard me speak in Natchez, Mississippi. The Bohemian Society had chartered a literary tour, and people were on this tour from around the world. And I think it was started in 1851 by Jack London and Mark Twain. Oh, Started wow. the Bohemian Society. And they chose a Southern writer for every Southern port. Okay. And I was chosen for the Port of Natchez. That is, I mean, what an honor. It How really exciting. Truly was. That was thrilling, I'm sure. And I did not know the justice. I, had, I knew her name, but I had never really seen her. And she was in line to shake my hand. And she's very gracious. But, uh, and she just said that... Uh, I love your words. And she just kept moving through, shook my hand, held it real tightly. But the gentleman behind me looked at me, he said, young man, do you have any idea who you just spoke with? I said, no, I, I don't. He said, that's Sandra Day O'Connor. Wow. The first female Supreme Court Justice of the United States of America. And then you all became friends. Became friends. I read, I read we had, that. We had breakfast the next morning. I almost messed that up, though. I was so nervous. <laughs> I got a brand muffin, and I said, and some orange juice. I said, I can't mess up that. Yeah. But they forgot to tell me, if you hold a brand muffin in your hand, and, and, and you're nervous, and you're squeezing the brand muffin, it has nothing to do but come through the middles of your fingers. Oh, no. Free tip, listeners. Don't hold, don't hold <laughs> brand muffins. Not tight. Do you remember how old you were? How old were you? Oh, my gosh. Time? I was, uh, that would have been, see, I don't think I was married then. So it would have been, was I married? I, I think I was. My wife thinks I was and, married. And viewers and listeners, he's looking over at his lovely wife, Barbara. So we have a nice, um, we have a live studio audience, which is fun. I've so. had to have been, the book was out, probably, I would say, 37 30s, or 41. Mid-30s, like yeah. That. What an honor. Well, you know, I, I think what draws me to Clifton is the love of community, love of family, exciting, fun stories. The other thing I want to ask before we dive into the crux of the book is, okay, tell me about um, Stairmaster. Stairmaster. So, so that, Clifton has a fun story about being involved with Stairmaster. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a fun story. It's a great story that goes back to Uncle Cleve. Okay. Uh, you would think that a 300-pound block of ice would just simply be a 300-pound block of ice, mm -hmm. enough to keep the food from spoiling and also to make your water cold and nice. Yeah. But uh, working at the ice house, I learned so many things about the possibilities of what can be as opposed to being devastated by what is. Mm. And that's what I learned from my uncle. So when I ran into the owners of the Stairmaster, it was not that the very best times for them. Uh, because it hadn't caught on at the time. Okay, and listeners, was, you know what I'm talking about, right? How many of you have been have spent time on Stairmaster? That was huge. Yeah, that was it a was huge. huge thing. And uh, I and I didn't have any muscles, so I really was no reason for me to be on <laughs> to be there. But I clearly understood what could happen, and that is what I give that clear understanding to my great uncle for helping me to see a reality that is not yet materialized in front of you, but see it and w start aiming at that. And, I, and they were having some problems. Uh, 
Uh, Did you meet them just through school? No, uh, no. they were here. It started here in Tulsa. Okay. The company okay. did. And the three owners, I knew, I didn't know them, but I met them. Oh, okay. And uh, I knew how things were going. And I, and all of a sudden, I had an idea. I said, they haven't even attacked the government markets at all. I said, I wonder if I could get the rights to that market. I know how to make that work. I'd never done that before in my life, but I'd never cut 300 pounds of block of ice. Sure. Yeah. And to do that for my great uncle, I mean, he didn't play. You had to know how to handle that ice pick and those hooks with precision, because if any chips were left, he called that his, his profit. So I had to learn to cut them perfectly, correctly. Wow. And so with that type of learning in my mind, I realized that you, the result of what you want is going to come from the effort you put forth and the work you do. Dreaming is one thing, but if a dreamer does not have effort and feet behind it, it will remain a dream. And I thought, I said, oh, well, you know, if I did that for my uncle, he was a hard taskmaster. Yeah. Long story short, I spent months going back and forth to Dallas, Texas to fill out the paperwork to get on the GSA schedule. I'd never even heard of a GSA schedule. I didn't know what that was. Yeah. So I had to learn all of that. Long story short, I did, had a relationship with Stairmaster until it sold. But I sold the first Stairmaster to the government. And uh, funny thing about awesome. it, uh, it was shipped by FedEx or some other transport system. But we were so afraid it wasn't going to work. So, so the, on one of the owners and myself, we got a truck and we put another Stairmaster in the back of the truck. And we tried to outrun FedEx so that we could be in Memphis, Tennessee at the, at the naval station. So if something went wrong, That's we, could have, we could cannibalize the other one yeah. and make it work. But fortunately, it worked. And, uh, and then the next thing that happened that helped it was a lady by the name of Oprah Winfrey uh, tried out the Stairmaster. And that's all she talked about. Oh, my goodness. And from that point, it became, it was on the way to become a household name. You've had so many wonderful things that have happened where you've been in the right place at the right, right time. time. That is so special. Thanks for sharing. I just thought that was interesting, listeners. I thought you would love to hear the Sandra Day O'Connor story. And Sandra's, what did you call her? Sandra, did I pronounce that correctly? Mm -hmm. Yes. And then Stairmaster. So that's exciting. But what I wanted to do, of course, it's so fun to hear exciting things about you. Tell me about your family. And then we're going to dive in to talk about the book that okay. I love. Well, you know, you have the family of your birth. Yes. The family that gives you a reason to face another day. Mm. Uh, I wasn't raised by my mom and dad. I was raised by my great aunt. Mm -hmm. And uh, she is the anchor of my life. Mm. Because I would not be sitting here today if it were not for what her. What was her name? Her name was Eleanor, Eleanor. But everyone called her Mama Punk. Mama Punk. Yeah. That's funny. Okay. Yeah, in, in the South. Uh, I don't know about the white community, but the black community, many people have a pet name and you don't even know their real name until they get married sure. or at their death. And so Mama Punk was called that. A few people called her Miss Eleanor, but for the most part, she was called Mama Punk by everybody. By everybody. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and, and getting an education meant the world to her. Mm. And she made sure that after I left her house, graduated high school, I had to travel 100 miles round trip wow. every day for four years. Every day? Every day. For four years. And I never missed a day wow. out of school. My great aunt uh, didn't have very much. And I remember one day I asked, asked if I could stay at home because we didn't have lunch money. And she said, 
No, you can't stay at home. No one starves in a day. You're getting on the bus. That's in the book, isn't it? It's in that Eight story? Habits of the yes, Heart. Yes, yes, it's yeah. in the book. I remember that yeah. story. Okay. And, I, and because of her persistence around the challenges, mm-hmm. and because of her persistence, because she was somehow able to see a world that I was not able to see mm-hmm. or to visualize an opportunity that I could not imagine. And she did everything within her power to keep me looking in that direction of success. Mm -hmm. Even though success was defined differently as we moved along, it became bigger and bigger and bigger. But just getting out of high school was a main thing. You're going to graduate from high school. And I graduated as a valedictorian of my class. That's so awesome. I'm sure she was so proud. And oh, listeners, she was sitting you know, on the third row. Listeners, we need to be like Mama Punk. Is that right? Yeah. Mama Punk. I mean, we, we. I feel that we as empty nesters and at the midlife of our life, we're going to have all these younger people that are going to be coming into our life, and we can be like her and spur them on to good things. And yeah. I know that's what you're all about, too. Yeah, so. that's, and then my family, my wife, my son, and our daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I would want life without them mm. because for the for this long period of time, they are my life. Yes. And uh, I, 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 they're not an appendage to me. How long have you been they, married to Barbara? Barbara and I have been married for 50 years and some weeks. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. That's right. Gold. And, and we share one commonality. Um, Clifton has a son in Los Angeles, and we have our youngest daughter is in Los Angeles. So that's fun to talk about that. And then please tell us about your daughter. That's an important part of your story. And Catherine. That's, not, that's her name. Uh, she was very smart. And I, and I don't say this because she's my daughter, but she was very, very bright. Uh, and she left, she died at, at age, age seven. seven. Yeah. Sickle cell. And yes. sickle cell and has several strokes and never recovered. Mm. And um, I, I know for years, Barbara and I probably didn't go to a movie or anything. It was so sad. Mm. Our house was sad. Yes. The walls were sad. It was just sad. And Marshall had graduated from high school and college, and he'd gone to L.A., where he currently lives. And we went out to visit him, and we were in a store. And Marshall said, Dad, would you buy this for me? I said, of course not. And he said, I bet if it was Aunt Catherine, you would have bought it. I said, of course I would. And we all started to laugh. And I think that was uh, on our journey back Mm. to life, realizing that my wife was a phenomenal mother. Mm. I, any child, would his, his or her life would be blessed to have had Barbara as the mother. Yes, and you as the father, I'm sure. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I did pretty good, but I, 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 now Barbara was incredible. Well, thank you for sharing about her, and, and thank you for sharing about your family. And I want to dive into this book that I love so much, so... I, uh, as empty nesters and as people who are, you know, we're pondering this encore year. That's what the encore years of our life. I, I just think about, I, I worry about the younger generation and I worry about some things that we are missing out on. And I think about the front porch days and how we need those. And I think about um, community 
and how COVID was so hard on some of our children and what that was like for the world. And, and I want people to know about the eight habits of the heart. And so I would love if you would share what those eight habits are. And listeners, you can find this book on Amazon. It fits in your purse perfectly or a briefcase or a backpack. It's a great, you can read it in one sitting on an airplane or anywhere, but it's a book that we all need to have. And it's a book we need to order a lot of to hand out and hand off to our children and their children. So please tell us a little bit about how you came about this eight habits of the heart. Interesting. Of all places on the planet, I came about the eight habits of the heart in Germany. In Germany, okay. In the hunting lodge where I was speaking that was built for Adolf Hitler. Really? I was talking about community. And how'd you end up there in that particular lodge? Because that's where they were having a conference of educators from around the world. Wow. And I was one of the speakers. Okay. And I had not used the term Eight Habits of the Heart. Mm -hmm. Had no idea about writing a book, Eight Habits of the Heart. Mm -hmm. What we had done, one of the educator leaders had read my first book, Once Upon a Time When We Were Colored. Mm -hmm. And she said, that is the best book I've read that speaks to community, no matter where you are and what you're doing. And so that's what they wanted me to talk about. And in the process of doing that, I began to talk about eight different people that were so important to me. Okay. And these eight different people, I, I just remember making the statement. I said, it was just like, it wasn't something that they planned or just practiced serendipitously or something. But it's, I said, it was just like, it was the habits of their heart. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden. I said, and they said, there was one people, a lady by the name of Dr. Dolores. I can't think of her last name right now, and I apologize. But she was one of the educator leaders in Europe at the time. And she said, uh, what a great title. You need to write that book. There you go. And that's when I was challenged. And we spent probably a month, a couple of months in Europe, back and forth, okay. working with about 14 different educators and looking at everything we wanted to look at, uh, at gotten the names for the habits, nurturing attitude. What is that, Clifton? Who, why did you choose that person to be nurturing attitude? We went through every one of those people, assigning them one of the eight titles that we had pulled That's out. That's wonderful. From the people that blessed your life. You're right. Yes. From the people in the Mississippi yes. Delta. Okay. And, and listeners, the, I'm going to jump in because I'm sure you're like, okay, let's. what are the eight habits? I'll just read these. Nurturing attitude, dependability, responsibility, friendship, brotherhood, high expectations, courage, and probably my favorite, hope. Yeah, those are the habits. And I tell people they're not concepts, they're people. Mm. And I remember doing work for the Ford Motor Company in Dearborn, Michigan. And I was going on the elevator with its chief information officer who had read Eight Habits of the Heart. And he said something that I've used, and I've always given him credit for having said it. He said, I wonder what could happen at Ford if all of our people encountered on a daily basis multiple micro dosages of unselfishness. Mm. Because for him, the book was the highlight of the importance and the impact of an unselfish life. Yes. And that's what the eight habits of the heart are all about. 
I love that. And I, I wanted to ask you, I, I wrote down my questions here. I'm looking at um, what habit for you personally has been the easiest in your life to embrace? The easiest have been nurturing attitude. Okay. And I think it's the easiest because that is something that I needed, mm. that I received from so many people who took the time to give me time. Yes. And I realized that I could do no less than they. I would have to give time. And that's what nurturing attitude is all about. It's the unselfish use of time. Mm -hmm. You only have 20, you know, 24 seven. Mm -hmm. And I tell people laughingly, you will never have 28, 10. That's so I true. Say, the world has been Favorite fashion and design around 24-7. Yes. My grandmother, Edna Ruth Schneider, used to say to me, you have 24 hours in the day and you get to choose. Please don't ever tell me you don't have time. Yeah. And that was such a great thing. And, you know, I, I do worry about time these days with everything's just in our hand. Our phones are in our hand. We're not on the porch. We're not taking time to give time. And that does concern me. So I and appreciate it's, it's, that. It's, 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 I, it produces a travesty, mm -hmm. not by purpose or by choice. Uh, our world has advanced in such a way that things and stuff has become more prominent in our existence mm -hmm. than people yes. and in the lives of others. Yes. We don't so get true. the same joy out of conversations that we once did. Mm -hmm. But for me, I still do. And nurturing attitude is the habit. The easiest for me, my son always laughed, said my dad would pick up a stranger. Just better watch that. He'll bring him home and feed him. <laughs> Which is a great thing. And then my follow-up. though, to call my wife now and get permission. Uh, that's a good, that's probably a good move. Um, I'm sure Barbara appreciates that. The second part, well, part B of that question is what habit has been a little more difficult? for you? What would be the one where you go, I'm still working on that one? I would probably say courage mm -hmm. because there are some areas of my life I can be very courageous, mm -hmm. but there are other areas of my life that need courage to be exemplified, lived out, and passed along. And I think about it. I deal with it, mm -hmm. but I don't just run and gravitate toward it, just embrace it wholeheartedly. Because sometimes to be courage, you're left on the outside. Mm, sometimes to be courageous, uh, you lose friends. Mm. Sometimes to be courageous, you use the place you thought you had. Uh, it, it, so I admire people who are courageous. Yes. I, I really, truly do because I know the difficulty it is in being so. It took a lot of courage for you to say, I'm not going to send this to you, but I'll come read it. Yeah. That was a lot of courage. And I'm sure you were like, where did, wow, how about that? But look at me, now I'm going to go. Well, I appreciate that. And I was looking at, um, I could talk to you all day. Listeners, isn't this just the best conversation? It's so wonderful to sit and talk with you. And I, I'm going to wrap us up here by reminding, read, by reminding watchers of this and listeners to See the movie. Pull up the movie, you all. Once Upon a Time When We Were Colored is such a great movie. And I'm sure you can find it anywhere yes. these days um, with all the streaming. Order the books. Go to the website, which is cliftontalbert.com, mm -hmm. and grab this book and get it out to everybody you know and dive in. And 
Um, there's just so much wisdom. We all can learn so much. And I, I just want our children that are coming after me and Gordy, our three kids, I want their kids to read Eight Habits of the Heart. And I want them to learn from everything that took you how many years to get published? I want that to be years. in the hands of people. And listeners, I hope if you're listening to this and and as we're pondering these encore years and we're pondering our lives and what to do and, and this empty nest phase, please remember that sometimes really great things take time. And and this book will be one, when you get it in your hands, I think you'll be really encouraged. And if it's all right, I'd love to take the liberty to read my favorite passage sure. about hope. And listeners, I would love for you to listen to, this is on page 100 and 101 of Eight Habits of the Heart. This, these are Clifton's words. But the teachings my elders shared seemed always to leave room for humanity to change and mature. And I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit here. My elders relied on the church to sustain them during the process of social change of which they continually dreamed. Even when I didn't want to go, seeds of hope were planted there that continued to fuel my life. We sang the songs that enabled the old and the lame to work just one more day. You can almost picture you all out in the fields like that. Within the safety of the church walls, hope welled up and stretched from Sunday to Sunday. I love that passage. I love that. My favorite day of the week is Sunday. So I like to think that I live my week Sunday to Sunday. And I love that. Hope welled up and stretched from Sunday to Sunday. I saw it shared among the adults who built my community. And listeners, please listen in close to this. This is my favorite passage. Dreams still require hope to sustain them, just as hope holds the blocks of community together. The world must never forget how hope looks, acts, feels, and the obligation each individual has to practice it, share, and pass it along. Does that sound pretty good? It most certainly does. Thank you for your words, and thank you for your time, and thank you for being on this video episode. So this has been such a treat. No, thank you uh, for the opportunity to, because in the book is not about me. No. It, it, it's about other people mm -hmm. and how their lives touched mine and continues to do so. When I think about how your life is going to touch, has touched so many people and how it will continue to touch for years and years and years beyond when we're not even here anymore because of everything that's been preserved. And thank goodness you carried those yellow pads around yeah. for a long time. A long time. Do you have any or would you mind sharing any parting thoughts with imagine just a lot of people in their middle age and then we're trying to figure out life? The kids have grown and flown, maybe people getting close to retirement, maybe some have retired. We have single listeners, we have married listeners, we have listeners from all over the, all over the globe. What would be some parting thoughts about um, just what you would offer? I, I think it's important for myself and others, no matter where we are, what age we're in, or what our circumstances might be, to recognize that to be a human being on this planet is marvelous. We bring gifts to the table, mm -hmm. and oftentimes we don't realize that. I would suggest that people think in terms of, how can I give my gift? Well, my gift is too small. Mm -hmm. There is no small gift. There are no big gifts, but there are gifts. Mm -hmm. And the gifts that we give from our hearts go to the heart of another and perhaps even encourage them to become gift givers as well. 
uh, and to recognize that people matter. Yeah. And because people matter, when we reach out to touch them, mm -hmm. to make their lives better as we make our own, then we have a clearer understanding of why we are here and the proposition that we can leave as to who we can become while we make this incredible journey called life. Mm, and I love you said who we can become. I tell my listeners all the time, we're still becoming. Yeah. We're still becoming. We still have a lot left. We still have a lot we can offer in these encore years. And people matter. That's a great way to end this. So I just thank you for your time and wish you all the best with the continued success of these books and the continued success of who knows what you have up your sleeve, right? I don't think I don't think God's finished with you yet. So I, uh, I it's the one thing about the numbers that one comes to your life because you live a year further. I've always seen that as another opportunity for God to show himself mm -hmm. in ways that uh, we might not fully understand at the moment. But for those of faith, it gives you reason to know that you're put here to do something. And, and, and everything one does can be defined as grand. Mm, that's so true. There aren't, there aren't any small gifts of love. No, and I love, you know, I try to remind listeners, it, it can be as simple as even saying, Lord, what do you want me to be up to today? Yeah. You know, I want to be about my father's business. What do you want me to be up to well, today? Well, I knew my son told me, called me one day, he said, Dad, I was at Raft's at the grocery store in California, in Los Angeles. I know right where that is. At Raft's. Raft's, yeah, I know where it is. I was uh, a homeless person who was there and asked for some money. He said, I didn't have any money, and I walked on the way, and I told him I didn't have any money. He said, but I heard your voice in my head saying, you have a credit card. Get him a sandwich or something. So I went in Raps and got him some food and brought it back out there. He said, I call you because I know you'd want to know that. Oh, that's so great. But that, to me, is a responsibility that my wife and I have. Wherever we have challenges, that we handle them in such a way that I'll, they will not be challenges for our son, mm. that he will be the other side of the Talbot family, that he will do things, great things that we could have never done. Yes. And he will be a kind human being. And Team Talbot's pretty special, let me just say. So thank you for your time today. Thank you for your writing. Thank you for your gift of putting this in our hands where we can order a book and read and watch and learn more from you and about you. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. Again, if you are watching, you can also listen on uh, Apple or Spotify. And if you're listening, you can watch this on YouTube. We'll get it posted. And as always, listeners, your time is valuable. I thank you for tuning in. I thank you for being a part of this great ministry and fun hobby that I have to be and to share time with you and to do this empty nesting thing together. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time, thank you, Mr. Talbert, for being here. Thank you, Clifton. And thank you for tuning in, everybody. My pleasure.